I want to talk to you from this passage of Scripture this morning about privilege and, uh, and as your notes are entitled, it's payday. Another word would be its responsibilities. Uh, the word privilege means a right or an advantage that has been given or granted to someone or some group. So I want to ask this question. What do you think is the greatest privilege that you have as a believer, as a Christian? Now, obviously, the answers will be as varied as we are people and personalities and background, for example. <clears throat> Several years ago, a young track star in Indiana who had been recruited to University of Georgia, Harvey Clance, who had been in the Olympics, took him around the campus, but he decided to stay home in Indiana, signed with his little college there, ran track, graduated, got his first job post-graduation, had to fly to Tulsa, got on American Airlines, and on his way to Tulsa, never been away, he's an only child, never been away from his mom and dad much, uh, and certainly not from the college in, uh, environment. Uh, on the way to Tulsa, he sat in three seats with two guys who he introduced himself to, and uh, they began to talk. They were uh, guys in Tulsa, in their jobs. They'd just bought a home. And he was telling them, I'm moving to Tulsa, don't have any place, and all that kind of thing. They said, why don't you buy in with us? We have three bedrooms. It'll just cheapen it for all of us. And so he said, I will. And they said, by the way, why don't you come to church with us next Sunday? Our brand new pastor from Fort Worth is preaching. That's me, First Baptist Church, Broken Era. And... Um, uh, so he did, and his, uh, by the way, this young guy had come to know Jesus through a television broadcast of Billy Graham, where he trusted the Lord, didn't know much about it, all that, but he'd become a believer, and Tony Lennox landed in Tulsa, went to work, came to First Baptist Broken Era, met our daughter, and the rest is history. We've been feeding him ever since. <laughs> He's one of our son-in-laws. And uh, Tony is an only child. If you ask Tony Lennox, what is the biggest privilege or blessing uh, that you have as a Christian, his automatic answer, he told me one time, is family. You're part of a big family. Isn't that, isn't that true? I mean, you may be as old as I am, all the kids gone, but you come on a Sunday morning and this is family. And it really is a family. And that's a great privilege. Now, if your past is as dark and dirty as mine is, you might say the greatest privilege is being forgiven. I mean, you know, some of the guys I talk with know what I'm talking about. Uh, I wouldn't even want to have to say, well, all that I've been forgiven of. I don't even want to say it out loud. I'm glad that it's not going to be broadcast. It's under the blood. That's the only thing I can count on. Forgiveness is a great privilege. There are others. Sharing the gospel. I never will forget when I was pastor in Fort Worth, we had an evangelism explosion clinic, and I and a Lutheran pastor and a Presbyterian pastor were teamed up. I was not in charge of the clinic. I was just one of the clinicians. I, I just took a team out. So we went to visit two little boys that were playing in our orchestra in those days. We didn't demand that they'd be believers. They just wanted them to be good instrument players. If they were good instrument players and weren't Christians, then maybe they'd hear the gospel. And so we had their name. We went, knocked on the door. They were, I don't know how old, uh, young teens. And a single mother answered the door. Told her who it was. 
And uh, she hollered for the boys who were in the back. We went in. They didn't come, but we began to share with her. You know how the fruit is ripe for the picking spiritually. And I asked her, is there any good reason why you couldn't invite the Lord Jesus to be himself in your life right now? No, I'd love to. We got on our knees. We started praying. And all at once, I said, repeat this after me, expecting to hear her. And I heard three voices. The two boys had been listening in the darkened hallway. When we knelt to pray, they both came in and knelt. And they all three, mom and two sons, received Christ as Lord and Savior. I looked up and I said to the boys, you know, I don't see triplets born very often. But I did tonight. Man, what a privilege to be able to share the gospel and see people come to faith in Christ, right? But if you were to ask a Hebrew Christian, a Jewish Christian, what is the greatest privilege you have as a believer? I think they would automatically say having a personal relationship with Jehovah God through Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Now, the reason I think the Hebrew Christians would say that is because that was unbelievable to them. You see, the only way they could meet with God or have any kind of relationship with him was one time a year on the Day of Atonement, one place, the temple in Jerusalem, and one person, the high priest, Aaron and later his descendants, going into the Holy of Holies to sprinkle the blood and God would come down in the tabernacle and then later the temple in Jerusalem where the high priest was. One day, one place, one person. And now the writer of Hebrews is saying, you are that person. You have a living, real relationship with God himself. In fact, don't do it now, but in Hebrews 4.19 and Hebrews 10.19, the verses are very, very similar. In fact, it's almost a repeat. And the reason is because when he gave in 4.19, he then gave chapter 5, 6, 7, 8, and 9 in order to explain why that was true. Jesus is our high priest. Jesus is our lamb. Jesus is the blood that covers the mercy seat. That's who Jesus is. I beseech you therefore now. And he begins in Hebrews 5.19 or 10.19 giving another statement. In other words, it was a privilege in the Jewish mind to even think of having a personal relationship with the living God. Does that make sense? Yeah. Now, you and I know that privilege always has a payday. It always comes with greater responsibility. There isn't any such thing as privilege without responsibility. And we know that nationally. America, it's a privilege to live in America. I won't talk politics, I don't. But the fact is, it's a privilege to be in this nation. But that's why we're more responsible than other nations on this globe for things that are right and good and godly and so on. There's greater responsibility. That's why I don't begrudge paying taxes. I might get mad at the rate of taxes, but paying taxes, no problem. That's part of the responsibility of the privilege of being an American. That's true even personally. If you have a privilege, then there's some personal responsibility. For example, when Mary and I were dated, dating 107 years ago. Uh, I graduated. She was going to be a senior at Edmond High School. I went to Lawton to work for Capital Paint Corporation. 
first time we'd been away in the year that we'd been dating, and we knew we were going to be married the next May. You know, so there I was at Capital Paint Corporation uh, in Lawton. But every day I got a letter. The aroma was wonderful. And up in the corner, it, all, it never said Mary Cherry. It always said MC. And it always opened with sweetheart. You know, things like that. <laughs> I mean, I'd go to the post office so quick and make your head swim. Every day in Lawton, looking for that letter. Then I'd drive home on the weekends. We'd have a blast. Well, one weekend, some of the boys wanted to play touch football and asked me to stay. And so I did. Didn't go home. Then I got tied up with uh, having to paint the OCS barracks, and we had to work through the weekend the next weekend to do it, so I'd miss two weekends. I went to the post office on Monday, and I got a letter. Only it wasn't addressed to sweetheart on the outside. It said, Mr. Paul Burleson. And in the upper corner, it said, Mary Frances Cherry. And there was no aroma about it. And when I read it, the letter said this. Here's the portion of the beginning. Mr. Burleson, it's a privilege for you to have a relationship with me. And that means you better be responsible to get home once in a while. Now, that's a little bit of a verbal analogy of what the letter said. She's much sweeter than I am. But in no uncertain terms, I knew I'd better be responsible enough to do something about the relationship. Am I right? Now, it is, not, it is no different in our walk with the Lord. We have this unbelievable privilege of a relationship. But the writer of Hebrews to the Hebrew Christians is also writing to us. Let us. Verse 22. Let us. Verse 23. Let us. Verse 24 and 25. That's personal responsibility. Now let's look at those for a moment. First of all, uh, let us keep on having faith in his person. That's uh, verse 22. Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith in him brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us continue, keep on having faith in his person. Now, in the Greek language, faith is an unusual word, as is love. Uh, sometimes it's a noun, sometimes it's a verb. Uh, but the unique thing about it is when faith is even used as a noun, it has this funny construction in the Greek language, which makes it, we don't even have it in English, and I don't know how to explain it to you, I don't understand it, but it's a uh, noun of action or an active noun. In other words, it's not a static thing. It isn't a person, place, or thing, like in English. But even uh, it has an, an activity to it. Now, the verb has an object. In other words, we're to have faith in something, love for something. The Bible says God is love. That's a noun. But the Bible says in John 3.16, for God so loved the world. That's a verb. The world is the object. Now, when faith is used, it's used intending to be seen as a verb. In other words, there's an object to it. The important thing about our faith is never the faith itself. 
It's never important whether we have a lot of faith or a little faith. The first thing that is important about faith is not the amount of it, the volume of it. It's the object of it. What are you having faith in? In fact, in biblical language, unless it says the faith once delivered to the saints, which is there and now, faith is used as an active thing. In other words, you're doing something with the object. You're resting in the object. So it's the object of your faith that's all important. Now the problem is a lot of people don't seem to understand that it is not having faith in faith. Faith is not the object of your faith. It's not having faith in others. Others are not, are not the object of our faith. You know the object of our faith? The Lord Jesus Christ alone. It's faith in him. And Paul said in Romans, it's faith in Jesus Christ. That's the unique thing of our faith as believers. And we are responsible. We have uh, the need to keep on having faith in his person. Now, let me illustrate to you what I'm talking about. I've used this many, many times. I heard Stuart Briscoe use it years ago. It meant so much to me, and it, it's really good. Suppose Lake Hefner is cold in Oklahoma. Lake Hefner freezes over. Now, it won't happen, but let's say it did. Miracle. This is a parable. I'm making it up. So I can, you know, make up anything I want to. So Hefner freezes over. Steve and I are walking on the walk. Steve says to me, uh, Paul, I think that ice out there will hold you up. I said, you think so? He says, I think so. I do too. I got all the faith in the world. That ice is going to hold me up. So I run out and I jump out on that ice, just thrilled to death. Only the ice is that thin and I go through. Now, I didn't lack faith. I just put it in the wrong thing, thin ice. Okay. But suppose we're walking along, Hefner's frozen. Steve says to me, that ice will hold you up. I say, I don't think so. No, I think it'll hold you up. Oh, I'm just not sure. And so I say, well, I'll see. I go out and I touch the ice, scared to death. I start creeping out on the ice, listening for a crack any time. But unbeknownst to me, the ice is 10 inches thick. Now, had you rather have a lot of faith in thin ice or a little bit of faith in thick ice? <laughs> well, the point is, it's the object of your faith that matters. Am I right? Now, watch this. Suppose I say, Steve, go to your car, to your toolbox, and get me one of those old-fashioned drills. Bring it out here. See, I'm making up this story. He doesn't have toolbox in his car. So, but he goes and gets it and brings it out, and he throws it out to me. And I take that, now watch, I take that old-fashioned drill and I drill through and I find out 10 inches deep what happens to my faith. Whoa! I mean, I begin to, my confidence is, now listen to me, the more you learn about the object of your faith, the greater the volume of your faith will be. One of the greatest things we can ever do is what we do on Sunday morning when Steve opens the Word. He points us to Jesus. Who He is. What He's done. What He's like. What's real because of Him. And our faith grows. 
Have you ever prayed, Lord, help me have more faith? My advice to us is this. How about we learn more about who it is we're trusting? This is the reason when I go to preachers and churches and have revival and so on, and I'm in the preacher's office, and if his library is filled with books on how to, you know, how to manage your money, how to raise your kids, how to have marriage, uh, how to understand a book of how-tos, you know. And they're all there. And there's nothing wrong with that. Except I begin to wonder, now wait a minute, does he know enough and is he sharing enough about who Jesus is? The greatest thing in our library can be uh, who God is, what God is like, what the sacrifice of the cross is all about. Why the resurrection can be understood and believed. In other words, all about who Jesus Christ is and what he's done for us. That's why we have a responsibility because of this unique privilege of having a real relationship with God to keep on trusting or having faith in his person. That's what I want to encourage you to do this morning, okay? Keep on having faith in his person. He'll never let you down. He'll always fulfill. He'll always be there. And he's the one in whom we place our faith. Amen? All right. The second one is in verse 23. Let us keep on having hope in his promises. Now, I know the King James says in that 23rd verse, uh, faith again. But it is not the word faith. It is not pistis, faith. It's hope. So, verse 22 talks about keep on having faith in his person. Verse 23 talks about keep on having hope in his promises. Now, let me tell you about the word hope. Steve said this the other day. So I'm really only uh, regurgitating something Steve has said. And that is, hope is not the kind of hope we have today. It's not the English word hope. The word hope has an absolute certainty about it. I illustrate it this way. Suppose you go to a high school senior and you say to them, are you going to graduate? Are you going to have good enough grades to graduate? And they say, here's a straight A student. And they say, well, I hope so. You go to a kid who's made uh, three C's and two D's and you say, uh, you're going to have good enough grades to graduate? And they say, well, I hope so. Well, one is the Greek word hope, the A student. It's an absolute certainty. The other one is the English word. Oh, yeah, it may or may not be. Who knows, you know? And this is the word of absolute certainty. In other words, we're to keep on believing, having faith in, right, we're to keep on trusting his promises. But that means you better know what he promised. You better not make a promise out of something that's not a promise. We're in trouble when we do that. For example, Proverbs 22, 6. Train up a child according to the bent of his own nature. That's what the Hebrew is saying. Train up a child according to the way he should go. And when they're old, they'll not depart from it. A lot of times people will latch onto that verse and make it a promise, an absolute promise from God. So they examine and watch and measure their children to see if God's keeping his promise. I trained them the way they ought to. Look at it. They're just not going that way. What's wrong? You know, do you know that Proverbs 22, 6 is not a promise? It's a proverb. Proverbial statements 
are not to be taken as literal promises. There's a proverb that says, uh, the, the lazy man will never come to wealth, and a slothful man uh, will never be satisfied. Well, some lazy people do get rich when they inherit from their parents, right? But the point is simply this. A proverbial statement means the general rule is, you can kind of see it as a rule, train up a child according to the bent of their own nature, and when they're old, here's what it's really saying, they will benefit from what you did in their lives. Now, you can rest in that. That's a general principle. But when he promises something, I mean, you can absolutely trust him to fulfill his promises. Keep on having hope in his promises. Well, what has he promised? Let me give you one promise that means a lot to me. I stand on it. And that promise is this. Um, I will supply all of your needs according to my riches in glory. Man, I love that promise. I will provide all of your needs according to my riches in glory. But I began to discover one day, I better make sure I know what my needs are. I read Larry Crabb one day, and he did it in such a wonderful way, I want to kind of share it with you. He mentioned the fact that everybody has those uh, casual needs. You know, they're just casual things. You need the lawnmower to start if you're going to mow your lawn. Don't you? Don't you need it? You need the sun to shine if you're going to have a picnic. Now, there's no place in the scripture where you can tie down a God down to a promise that the rain won't come on a picnic or the lawnmower won't start when you need it to. That, we just, we know that, don't we? I mean, we can't tie God down to casual needs. But then Crabb went on to say, there are crucial needs. In other words, the doctor says, it's cancerous. The doctor says, I'm going to have to put in a new knee, but I'm a heart patient. I'm on all kinds of blood thinners, and what about blood clots? And Well, I know it's more dangerous than anybody, but I'm going to have to. We're going to have to do it twice. Now, I have a need medically. <clears throat> Others have needs. Is it right for us to ask God for him to intervene? Of course. Of course. Praying for healing. Praying for uh, health. I mean even a miraculous healing so that only God can be seen as the one who did it. Will God do it? On occasion. Many times he's done that. Sometimes he hasn't. We try to figure out why he hasn't happened. Hasn't, hasn't. But that's not ours to know. The only thing I do know is there is no absolute promise that he will meet all of our crucial needs. The phone can ring in the middle of the night. It can be a car wreck and your teenager is okay. But that same phone call can inform you that your teenager is not okay. And I've been with many, many people who've suffered the latter as well as the former. 
Now, it doesn't mean that God doesn't care. It doesn't mean that God isn't concerned. And it doesn't mean that God won't answer in a special, unique way in those crucial areas. Keep on praying. Okay? But the point I want to show is there's no absolute promise in Scripture that every physical thing will be healed. Every crucial thing will be answered the way we want. Just as casual needs are not promised, crucial needs aren't covered with an absolute promise. But I'll tell you what is, uh, 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 critical needs are not, but I'll tell you what is covered, and that's crucial needs. Casual, critical needs, maybe not. Crucial needs, absolute. Absolutely. Trust it. God says I'll supply every need that is crucial for life to be worth living. That's what a crucial need is. Something you can't live life without. You can live life without physical healing. You can live life without other things. But you can't live life without crucial needs being met. What are they? Everybody needs to know they're loved. I spoke to Wade's senior adult party last Wednesday night and told him in the last, you know, as I'm getting older, the more I'm understanding, I want to live each day knowing I'm loved. I don't want to run around looking for somebody to love me. I don't have to. I'm loved. Why? Because Jesus is the one who has redeemed me by his grace and the Father in his love has received me on the basis of who Jesus is. In other words, I need to know I'm loved and the Father says, "Mm -mm, I love you unconditionally. Even when you mess up, even when you're embarrassed and ashamed, I'll never love you more. I'll never love you less. I love you. It's called grace. Did you know you can't live life without knowing that you're accepted? That somebody accepts you? You can't get out of bed in the morning without knowing somebody. I need to be accepted by somebody. Now, people will try. People will try to love you. Sometimes they do. Sometimes they don't. People will try to accept you. Sometimes they do. Sometimes they don't. But God, now listen, it's crucial. You can't live life to its fullest without knowing you're accepted. And do you know what the scripture says? We are accepted in the beloved. In other words, the father will never unaccept me. He'll never non-accept me. I'm accepted not because of the way I do for crying out loud. Nobody can accept that. It's because of who Jesus is and what he did. On that basis and my faith in him, I'm accepted by the father. We need to know that we're not alone. That we're not alone. By the way, there's a promise. I will never leave you nor forsake you. And you can rest in it. Now here's the point. What the writer is saying in Hebrews is the privilege of having a relationship with the Father leaves us responsible, the payday for it, is that we're to keep on having faith in his person and keep on having hope in his promises. You know what he promises? I love you unconditionally. I accept you. I don't leave you where I find you. I'll bring you on to other things, but I accept you where you are. And I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. You can live life. If you don't have another person in your life, you can live life to its fullest 
with that kind of understanding of your relationship with the Father. Then the final one is this, and I'm through. Verse 24. Let us keep on having love for his people, faith in his person, hope in his promises, and love for his people. Look what it says in this verse. Let us consider. That word consider means, we usually think it means to think about. Well, let me consider that for a moment. You know what it means in Greek? To intensely gaze upon. In other words, eyeball to eyeball. Consider. It really means to be totally interested in. Have you ever been around somebody, you're talking to them and they're not interested in what you're saying and it's obvious? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Hey, yeah, yeah. Go, go ahead. Go ahead and go Mary is the absolute best at intensely listening to another person when they're talking. I mean, you can tap her on the shoulder. Doesn't mean anything. She's involved. You learn to wait. That's the model for me of what it is to intently gaze upon people. Okay? And you know what it does? It provokes them. Now, that's negative in the, in the English but it's not negative in the Greek. It means to have an internal explosion of what? Love and edification. In other words, somebody responds to it. Oh, it's good. But here's the point I want to make. Do you know where this happens? Considering, gazing upon, so on and so forth. Look at verse 25. It really begins in the original with the word by. By, not forsaking the assembling of yourselves together as the manner of some is. In other words, you know where we intently eyeball to eyeball people and listen and because of our relationship in hearing them and being with them, they explode into love and being edified and so on. You know where that happens? At church. This is the only time in the New Testament, where the word assemble is not ecclesia. It's the word from which we get the word synagogue. It means the location, the place. This is the only time the place where the church gathers is even mentioned. But do you know why it's mentioned here? Because when they get together, wherever they get together, that location, they do it to intently look upon to intently be involved in, eyeball to eyeball, encouraging one another. Mary and I have left this place. Then we go down to a worship service, praise and worship, and the Word of God opened and applied and relationally, as the way I've mentioned to you before. We get in the car and drive home, and our remark is, man, it's like an oasis. It's like a, taking a shower. Now, that's our literal way of saying what an encouragement what a blessing are you following me but the idea is for us to go intending to be the one who provokes others into love and good works not to watch to see if anybody is interested in me but to be the one who provokes others illustration and I'm done Several years ago, we were, I was traveling full-time. Uh, I was an elder at a church in Tulsa. 
There was our pianist. We didn't know. Mary knew about her, heard about her. Rough story. I won't even get into the details. That's her story to tell. But she was a broken lady at the time. And she was up playing. And her, her hands, Mary and I noticed her hands were, you know, she was playing for the worship service, but it, it was obvious. I'll never forget this. Mary got up from sitting beside me, walked over, went to the piano, sat down, put her arm around her waist, and the young lady just continued to play. And her hands got steady. And now, she later became a dear friend to Mary, and we got all the detail, and it was worse than we could have even imagined. But the point I'm making is simply this. You never know what a movement to put your arm around the waist of somebody in our place, hug somebody, shake somebody's hand. Uh, I loved kiss guys on the cheek. Abe, one of Wade's associate pastors, first African-American they've had on staff full-time, wonderful guy, just his wife Mary and I have had them in retreat for marriage and family enrichment. And uh, I got... Two months ago, I was preaching in Wade's absence, and Abe Wright came in, and big, tall athlete, you know, man, he was a great, played for the Miami Dolphins. I uh, reached up, and he reached down to hug me, he has to reach down, I guarantee you, reached down to hug me, and I kissed him on the cheek. And he told all three services that Sunday morning, but you know, if some guy were to kiss me, I think I'd wonder about him, but when Brother Paul does it, it's okay. Yeah. I'm not saying how you should do it. I'm just saying sometimes people need their hands to be steadied and their hearts to be stirred. Are you? And oftentimes that happens in these moments. And that's what our responsibility is. Now, we have more responsibility. Of course, to gossip, gossip the gospel all over the world, all that. But I'm just dealing with this passage of Scripture. The writer is saying to these Hebrews, this privilege of having a relationship with the God of the universe bears with it a responsibility to keep on having faith in his person, keep on having hope in his promises, and keep on having love for his people. Now, that takes the Holy Spirit because there are some people I, I've pastored and, and so on that I didn't even like much less love. I mean, you know, it has to be the work of the Holy Spirit, but it's amazing how it comes. And I guess my final word as kind of the few weeks here that Steve's allowed me to fill in, and I'm so thankful, I say it again, but uh, my final word to you is keep on having faith in this person, whatever that means for you. Keep on having hope in his promises, however you see that happening. But keep on having love for his people like I've seen here for a year and two months that we've been attending. May God give us a baptism of continuing on in what's happening as his children. Amen? Amen. All right, God bless you.